garbage in, garbage out. Is, is their reporting going to be any better? It's always on the ISPs to report accurately. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I am Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today, returning to a guest that we spoke with, uh, seems like 20 years ago, but it was actually two years ago, uh, Derek Turner, the Research Director for Free Press. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be here. And it's so true. It, this, this past two years, I guess, going on now is uh, sort of one big blur. So uh, I'm happy to be back. There's certainly been a lot of developments uh, in this topic uh, and uh, lots to talk about for sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are much more interested in how we got to where we are with mapping at the federal government. I mean, I feel like you can't talk to anyone if you say the word mapping like this like a race to figure out who's going to talk about the whole like one house per block being served and this and that but there's a i think there's a more interesting history and there's also an assumption that it's going to get better and <laughs> um it might be hard to get worse but i'm 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 pretty skeptical about how about how excited we'll be in a year as to where we are with mapping so um but anyway I, I thought immediately thought of you because whenever i talk with you about this stuff i'm reminded that that you know all of the stuff that happened that for me um i barely even can recall and uh, you've made comments <laughs> over the years and tons of these proceedings. So I'd uh, love to just you know, jump in. Um, and I, we'll, we'll do that right after you remind us uh, what Free Press is. Absolutely. Uh, so Free Press is a national uh, nonpartisan organization that uh, you know, we founded to involve the public in, in media and telecommunications policy debates uh, where uh, we felt that um, – the public's voice was missing from a lot of these debates. A lot of things that were going on in DC were very insidery and there was a lack of, you know, on the ground, local grassroots groups being involved in these conversations. And so we sort of were found to act as a bridge between the grassroots and the, and the, the national grass tops organizations and do both inside and outside lobbying uh, and just trying to give a voice for, you know, the, the user of the internet and the user and viewers and listeners of media uh, in these policy debates. I feel like when people hear telecommunications, they think, oh, telephones, broadband, but you guys are interested in media ownership and a variety of, of ancillary topics that are important for democracy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, our, one of our founders is uh, Professor Bogma Chesney, uh, Champaign-Urbana, and one of the big things that he founded us for was just the, the failure of the media to do a good job in reporting in local communities and the influence of corporate com media and the influence of advertising-based media which is still a problem. I guess we're not that successful, but, <laughs> but we quickly realized uh, that one of the keys of fixing the media would be ubiquitous, open, affordable internet access because it would enable people, especially with open source technologies, to go around the traditional media gatekeepers. Now, I think today we obviously find ourselves with a new generation of gatekeepers, though I'm still very positive on the potential of the internet because it does allow something like you and I to have this conversation and for people to then hear it uh, without going through uh, you know, a traditional gatekeeper to, to produce and, and to distribute that information. Absolutely. And the last thing that I'll say about that is just that I'm very much persuaded by um, Yochai Bankler and others who would argue that it is the old gatekeepers that are often creating the problems uh, on the, the newer um, media that's more decentralized. So if we, if we just cut them off, we'd probably be better off on this new <laughs> decentralized approach. So much in agreement with that, for sure. So 477 started in 2012 or so, right? Like uh, we didn't have to worry about mapping before that. I'm just totally being facetious. <laughs> I was about to say, hold on, we're going to have to have a 
step back here for a second. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, mapping is an issue that I feel like, like I think of you, Sasha Meinrath, and others who, in the in the before times, were like, you know, if we don't get this right, we're going to be having a lot of problems over the years. And I just feel like a lot of those claims that that y'all made were have been proven out. So, where would you start in terms of of looking at um, mapping of broadband? I think it's probably best to start right around the time that Congress was uh, debating and enacting the 1996 Telecommunications Act, because that really set the stage for this past 25 years of everything we've seen in the media and internet space. And at the time, um, you know, we had regulated phone companies and that model was largely failing. And there was a big push to open up the markets to competition. Cable companies were very vocal about, hey, we can do two-way services. Let us get into the market and we'll bring lots of great things and we'll be we're happy to be regulated. And, and uh, the, the telephone companies like, hey, you know, we don't actually like being regulated. Let us compete and we'll do all sorts of wonderful things. And their big promise was we will bring fiber everywhere. We'll upgrade all of our lines and, and, and everything will be great. I don't, I, you know, I'm a little bit older than most folks, perhaps, but I don't know if you remember these. You may have seen it on YouTube, just as a ret uh, retrospective, but there used to be this commercial from Quest and had this guy checking into a, to a crappy rundown motel in the middle of the desert. And he like asked the clerk, you know, do you, do you have any movies? And the clerk looks up and she says, we have every movie ever made <laughs> throughout history available. And then it was like a big fiber optic commercial, right? So that, that was the promise. Those were the things that were being said at the time. So the act did open up the markets to competition. But in particular, it, Congress kind of wanted to make sure that all these promises were going to be kept, right? So they implemented what's called another three-digit number, the 706 proceeding. And so that was where the FCC was supposed to monitor the reasonable and timely deployment of what it called advanced telecommunications capability. And obviously that definition's changed over the years, but it just meant something faster than what you could get over dial-up, right? Right, and always on. There you go. Always on. You didn't have to like connect with that annoying sounding modem and all that and uh, Right. So they gave the FCC actually a long time to actually even start to do that proceeding. So fast forward to, to 1999, we've got the first 706 proceeding. And the data in that was based on just a voluntary survey they sent out to a few carriers. So the, the commission really quickly realized this is not going to work. So in 2000, they started and then issued an order that created Form 477. And though broadband was included in that, this was a different time where the primary thrust of it was local telephone competition. They really wanted to mark, monitor how local telephone markets were changing. So that was largely the, the, the thrust of it. But, but basically what that did, which perhaps to the people at the time, I hadn't yet been in the field yet. It seemed adequate to them, but it was quickly proven to be inaccurate. What they did was say, okay, at the state level, all the carriers need to report, and I'll just talk about broadband from here, I'll report the number of subscribers they that's it. And then they also said, give us a list of the zip codes where you offer service. And zip codes at the time, there was some debate about what would that be adequate. Some folks like the American Library Association said, hey, this is probably not going to be granular enough. You need to do something different. The carriers, of course, pushed back and they wanted you know, state level and that's it. And, and so the FCC did say zip codes. And then they said, okay, we don't understand. We don't want to create a burden on you carriers. So we assume that you have billing databases with zip codes in them. If you send someone a bill, you're in that area. But so problem was, is that it's, they counted a zip code as covered if there was at least one subscriber in the zip code. And we can sort of get into this later, but zip codes are insanely variable geographies. They can, they can vary from, you know, a, a few, like one or no, no people. Some zip codes are like literally PO boxes to 
tens of thousands, if not up to 100,000 people. So these are very huge geographies and it's just kind of meaningless to say the area is covered if it's a zip code. The other thing was they only required uh, providers who had 250 or more subscribers in a state to report. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, but there were a lot of rural telephone companies that were funded with universal service money, were rolling out broadband and they were completely missed. And so when the SEC in 2004 changed the methodology to say, all right, everybody's got to report, it literally more than doubled the number of reported carriers. So that was at the start. In 2004, they kind of realized, yeah, this isn't working out so well. Um, they had to come back in 2004 because the initial data collection was only going to be for five years. It was going to expire and that was going to be it. So they came back and they made some marginal improvements to it. They started actually asking, hey, tell us your subscribers at the state level by speed tier. Like before, it was just, do you, do you offer something above 200 kilobits per second or not? Now it was, okay, tell us the number of subscribers in the state level, you know, between two, 200 kilobits and two and a half megs, two and a half megs and 10, so on and so forth. It was, it was quite monumental at the time because this is something you wanted to look at. Like, okay, broadband's one thing, but is it really broadband or is it this, you know, slow stuff that's not making any progress? I don't recall, I mean, I don't know what the actual numbers were, but also for, for people who are quite younger, like... I think a lot of people were on the internet at this time. Like, this is not like the late nineties. This is like, you know, I remember like a lot of people, like blogs were taken off. Um, you have uh, a lot of commentary about, um, about, uh, George W. Bush, um, you know, like the Iraq war. Um, I feel like probably half of Americans were online. Probably. That's exactly right. At that time we hit about half of American households were online. It was a couple of years later, I think 2007, maybe then half the people were technically on broadband because dial up, was the thing. And then it kind of went away mm -hmm. pretty quickly once broadband was a little bit more available. They also implemented a couple of other metrics. And this, this is one little sidebar that kind of shows you how it's sort of ridiculous and how much the FCC bends over backwards for the carriers. They, they said, okay, look, we don't really have an availability. So there's availability and there's competition data. There's a number of subscribers, which you could use to say how competitive is a given area. And there's just a sheer availability. Is it there or not? So form 477 deals with both and both are important, but they had nothing on availability at that point. The zip code methodology kind of realized wasn't the greatest for availability. So they said, hey, telephone companies at the state level, tell us the percent of your telephone lines that are also DSL enabled. Cable companies tell us the percent of your cable TV lines that are also cable modem enabled, and we'll report a percentage at the state level. So that was kind of an improvement. We could like look and rank states, but to show you how ridiculous the FCC is, 17 of those states had incomplete data where they would redact that percentage at the state level because they said it was competitively sensitive. <laughs> I don't know how to reverse engineer something like that. Like you tell me I, that there's 65% of the DSL or phone lines are DSL in Rhode Island. I, I don't know what to do with that information. Like right. as a competitor, what, anyway, so kind of ridiculous like that. So well, and, and also, I mean, the, the ridiculous part about that is like, their competitors probably all know, right? I mean, like, not only do they know each other, but like, presumably, is like, as like a lineman or a, you know, switches companies, probably some of them in the company is like, hey, like, you know, give us a little information about that other company you're coming from, you know? So they all know this, <laughs> but oh, like, they absolutely they just, know it. Yeah, the it's investment not... community knows it because they do channel checks, they do all kinds. Of things. So this is it's, it's the FCC. It's just us who doesn't know it. <laughs> you're right. It's a stereotype, but the commission is a captured agency. They, I mean, like, you look, you study regulatory capture in grad school. And like, they're the first case study, right? It's notorious. So I started working on this in 2005. Um, when I was in, in grad school, I prior to that I had a career as a medicinal chemist. So I'm, I come at this as a scientist, as a data guy. And I immediately look at 
this and I just say, hold on a second. Because <laughs> the what's immediately struck, st stuck out to me is that, and I'm, this is a common phrase people heard, is lying with statistics. So that summer, summer 2005, we got this thing that you probably talked about on your podcast before, the Brand X decision. That was where the Supreme Court said, okay, we agree with the FCC's decision in 2002 that cable modem is not a telecommunication service regulated under Title II. It's an information service just like any other website. So that decision came down. With a notable dissent from Scalia. Exactly. The, the People can feel however they want about him, but I do think you should go read his dissent because he talks about <laughs> offering pizza delivery. It's Anyway, don't want to get sidetracked. So the then FCC chair Kevin Martin had this very big op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he was just rah, 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 our policies are great because he was then putting out an order to do the same reclassification to DSL service and then take that out of all the legal protections that come with Title II and shove it in Title I where they couldn't do anything. And, and so his op-ed was centered around how great the U.S. is, and he, he said things like there's fierce competition. And to back that up, he cited the FCC zip code data. And this is how ridiculous the zip code data is. At the time, it said nearly 70% of zip codes had four or more ISPs offering <laughs> service. And here we are in the year 2021. I still only have two. Right. And certainly at the time, I was lucky to have two, right? It was your DSL or you know telephone company's service or your cable company service. And mm -hmm. nothing changed. So it was a duopoly. We all know that. That was like, so he's lying with statistics. And so I saw that and I was like, well, hold on a second. This is, this is garbage. So we started looking into it. We put out a report that summer. I put out another report the next summer. It got a lot more attention. The AP covered it. Martin, to his credit, invited me to his office. <laughs> I'd only been on the uh, in D.C. at that time for, for a few months, and he brought me to his office. He's like, all right, I hear your critique. What do you, what do you want to do about it? And, and uh, there was such a snowballing effect after that point that Congress directed GAO to write a report on why the FCC's data is getting all this critique, and they came out in early 2007, slammed it. So Martin, to his credit, he said, okay, we're going to fix this, and he put us in a room with AT&T and and there was a long debate. They launched a proceeding in 2007. They, we kind of narrowed down on the contours of the debate in 2008. The industry has always been very reluctant to do anything. So the fact that he was basically chess piecing and saying, if you want this, AT&T, you got to do something on this. And it was back and forth. And it ended up where they did make some very important reforms in 2008. And the, most notably, they said zip code methodology, get out of here. Uh, carriers now have to re report the number of subscribers they have at the census tract level. We wanted address level. We wanted the most granular we get. Certainly, we wanted something more granular than census tract. But it was an improvement because before it was state levels. We're down there. The key to that is, though, again, this is on the competition side. If I know the number of subscribers by the carrier, I can then calculate what's called market share. And if I look at a given area and say, okay, this area technically has two providers available, but one of them has 90% of the customers. That's not a competitive market. There's going to be issues there. I wanted the FCC to collect pricing data so that I could combine that and do classic antitrust analysis. But that's a story for another day. So that that was an improvement. They punted, up, however, on the issue of availability data. They, Martin, to his credit, his notice said, we think we should collect this at the address level, but we're going to ask more questions. Well, then the election happens, the economy collapses. And Congress then says, OK, we want a national broadband plan and we want a national broadband map. They gave it to N uh, NTIA and said, here, go make a, a national map. You may recall the time there was a lot of hype around this project called Connect Kentucky. They like were the first to come to D.C. and put up these really fancy looking maps and say, they had solved we it. did it. That's why Kentucky has such amazing Internet access now. <laughs> right. We solved the problem. <laughs> 
Kentucky and AT&T. And it just so happened that Connect Kentucky's board, (laughs) interestingly enough, I mean, they probably had trouble filling it out, but it was was AT&T, AT&T's friends and AT&T's suppliers. 100%. So they were the darlings of DC at the time. They had I'm from the South, so I get to say this. They had, you know, their, their representative had a little bit of an accent and all shucks kind of thing. And when the NTA got the mandate to do these maps, this national map, the way the law was written and the way they interpreted it was, okay, each state collects the data using their own methodology and they give it back to us and we'll produce a map. Now, we were just like throwing up our hands there because you can't have 50 different methodologies. It just just doesn't work. And it was a waste of money. And we talk you know, about how the states aren't well organized on broadband today. You can right. imagine what it was like then. <laughs> a couple of things to the NTA's credit. So they at least were able to set some of the standards for the, the reporting level. And so, again, we were saying, hey, address level, g- give it to us. But the more I actually dug into this and actually talked to carriers, some some carriers are just their their databases are terrible. And so some would be able to do address level well. Some wouldn't. Some people get the bill sent somewhere they don't actually live. So. I'm a demographer. I'm a data guy. I, I don't. I want this availability data not just so I can have a pretty map to look at. That's obviously maps are incredibly important for people on the ground. But I also wanted the information so I could say, okay, are we seeing more deployment in certain areas? To, you know, areas where you know that are heavily uh, people of color. Are they getting less good service? Are they getting less deployment? How does income impact this? I wanted to be able to combine that with census data and do that kind of work. So to their credit. NTA said, okay, we'll do census blocks. And the carriers, don't want to, they eventually said, okay. Also to their credit, NTA understood this issue that plagues the FCC's maps of if it's a census block in a rural area, you can be in the top corner and the block itself can be literally a hundred square miles and only have the top corner served. And yet everybody who's outside of that top corner shows up as being served. NTA understood that and said, okay, for geographically large census blocks, you have to not just report the block, you have to report the road segment. This is another even more granular census level. So they produced their maps. It helped. I think it. I think the lack of money to spend on deployment, ultimately the maps are, they sort of as a tool kind of run out unless you've got people wanting to spend money in these rural areas. You don't, you don't see a lot of follow through. But after that, it, none of this went away. The, the NTA had their maps funded for about three years and then they gave it back to the FCC and the FCC wasn't certain whether they were going to do anything. And then to their credit, the FCC says, okay, we'll take it back over. We'll, we'll do this. And again, this was something that states literally got hundreds of millions of dollars to build. The FCC said, we'll just require you to report availability at the census block level to us as a part of Form mm-hmm. 477. So that's when we got Form 477 maps at the FCC. Not to their credit, though. The FCC said, eh, we don't want to burden carriers with this whole roadblock segment reporting. We'll just do, if you're in a census block, you got one, you know, you, you serve one person there, you're good. You know, you got one deployment there, you're good. The other thing they did that was terrible and wasn't fixed until recently, they they basically said, not, hey, carrier, tell us where you offer service. It's tell us where you could offer service. Right. And it was used using very vague language within a service interval that is typical for that type of connection. So that just led to a bunch of overreporting, in particular on the part of fixed wireless providers. But also the competition side of it was totally distorted by what are called CLEX, competitive local exchange carriers. These are companies that can legally, via the Communications Act, come in and, and lease the t- local telephone equipment from the local telephone uh, incumbent. And they were basically just claiming everywhere that they, that yeah, okay, we, we could technically purchase a circuit and, and offer service there, whether or not they had any subscribers. So that would then lead to these situations where you, you'd look at an area and you'd see like three or more providers and you know it's a duopoly. And so recently the FCC 
the heat keeps coming on. Congress keeps getting mad. <laughs> and they finally, in, uh, in 2019, started to fix this part of it a little bit, uh, where they changed that reporting standard to a within 10 days you could do it. It didn't really change much. Yeah, I mean, we just did this um, transparency report in which we're trying to figure out like which ISPs, you know, say that. And so we we wanted to be um, uh, we wanted to have a neutral standard for which ISPs we reported on. So we decided to pick the ISPs that that were the largest in each of us in a bunch of segments. And the wireless ISPs that claim to be the largest via those reporting, um, several of them have like infinitesimal user bases. I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, we're in front of 120 million homes or I guess more like 60 million homes. And you're like, yeah, but you have 20,000 subscribers like you guys. Right. Suck. When that when that ratio is so out of whack, it's a big red flag. And, you know, it's it's very frustrating because the commission knows this. Um and during Chairman Pai's tenure, he puts out um, a report saying, wow, look at how much fiber deployment has grown under my tenure. And, you know, you know this well because your group found this as well. Basically, at the same time I did, we look at the maps and you look at like, wait, the largest provider in the United States is this company called Barrier Free, who I've never heard of. And, and so we called that out and the FCC pulled back their maps. They did an investigation and finally find Barrier Free a few years later. But if you go back and track the timeline of it, they were going after Barrier Free and saying, something's wrong in your data. Please fix it. And they, they just didn't. And they, they knew that. The Bureau knew that. The Commission's Bureau knew that. And they still went ahead and put out a bogus report based yeah. on that data. So, and, so garbage and, in, garbage out. And so people are aware. I mean, it's not just that all of a sudden Barrier Free was like, we're everywhere. We, we were working in Pennsylvania on a project at that time. And all of a sudden, the new data dumped. And we were like, wait a minute. Barrier free can offer a gigabit to every home in Pennsylvania in ten days. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is remarkable. Like these guys again. Like you know, they they could take over the planet if they can do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, a little fixed wireless provider, like on a small part of like you know Fire Island or somewhere off New York. Right? <laughs> yeah, and so like um, it's it's just incredibly frustrating. I did want to say one thing. Um, I didn't want to interrupt your your. No, uh, I, I, that's basically it. We're caught up now. That the the, the, the the conclusion of the story is Congress finally got involved again. We're going to get new maps. I'm not very confident that the new maps will be any better than the old maps because basically the, the, the main change is instead of submitting a list of census blocks, they're submitting the actual maps, that like the GIS shape coordinates files. of the shape files, right, of, of where they offer service. But that's actually how they could have been present submitting the information along. It's not like some ISPs know their census block they're in. They actually use a conversion tool to convert their shape files right. into blocks and then submit that list. So it's not, so it's garbage in, garbage out. Is, is their reporting going to be any better? It's always on the ISPs to report accurately. The other part of it is the denominator. So knowing where the households are and businesses are that are in a given area so that the, the map itself has some meaning to it in terms of percentages. The Georgia map that's come out in uh, a year and a half ago gets a lot of praise because it, it shows more holes. And so it's automatically assumed to be better than the FCC's map. But I, I literally spent like five minutes looking at that, and I'm from Georgia, and I looked at the Atlanta area, and the Atlanta airport shows up as having no service on the Georgia map. So, again, just because it's different than the FCC's map doesn't make it better. Remains to be seen how good these maps are, will or won't be, but it's important to get it right because we're now about to spend 40-something billion dollars on broadband. That's probably right. If you called up a provider and said that you needed a residential circuit turned on in, um, you know, in the Sky Lounge, they would not be able to do it. So it's technically accurate, perhaps. <laughs> Correct, but it's like big hole in the area, and it's not just right. the airport itself. It's the area surrounding it. So it's, yeah. Right. Because, and it's important, yeah. though, because this, this 
the FCC's reporting does break data down by residents, but it's it's for residents and businesses. So mm-hmm. it's not just residential. Yeah. Do the carriers themselves know where they can deliver service? And it's I feel like the answer is complicated in that for the DSL, they don't. You know, like, I mean, they themselves, if you put a gun to their head and said, tell me, can you deliver 20 megabits to this address? They would honestly have to say, I don't know, because, you know, they don't have a record and they don't know what the condition of the line is. And um, and so, you know, it, it's it's a bit of a mess there. I mean, they they don't know where those copper runs are. And, and this is one of the issues I think people don't understand is like there's this mythos like AT&T is amazing. It made all these investments. It built this wonderful network. It bought a bunch of networks, and it's more true of the cable companies than the telephone companies. But like they bought record, they bought companies that had incomplete or incorrect records or no records, and they try to like put it all together. And the people who built those networks have all retired or moved on, and like, nobody has any idea like really how a lot of this stuff holds together. And so, frankly, I think Comcast does a remarkable job for how reliable they are. It, it gives you a little bit of sense of why Charter is as bad as they are, and some of those other companies, um, the, the cable companies. But like. They literally barely know themselves what they can do because their records are pretty poor. Is is my read on it? You just criticized Charter. They're my my carrier, so they're not listening and <laughs> drop my connection right now. <laughs> please, please don't hurt me, Charter. No, that's absolutely right. A lot of people sort of you know accept the current as as the way things always been, but that's not the case. There's been so much consolidation in in both the telephone and cable industries. Cable industry, in particular, this used to be a very ma and pa kind of small system business, and it's been zipped up over the past 25, 30 years to quite a remarkable level to where Comcast and Charter are almost the entire country, right? And then there's there's everybody else other than them out, you know, about 80, 90% of the country is Comcast and Charter in terms of cable. So yeah, it's, it's, they, they don't have their act together. Now I think they have incentive increasingly to have their act together because this is now a very mature market in terms of uh, we don't have the latest data out of post pandemic yet or, I should say, I always feel guilty when I say post-pandemic because we're still in the middle of it. Right. I mean, post the beginning of the pandemic and the, and the heavy lockdown phase of it, where there was a big pull forward in people adopting broadband at home because they had to have it, right? So uh, we're probably at maybe 85, 90% of households have some form of broadband fixed or or mobile at this point. And it's a maturing business that, that people are uh, both willing to pay for and obviously the carriers are willing to make money off it. So it's in their best interest, not only to, to know that, but now there's money on the table, right? And and like you have major companies out there saying, you know, this is a part of our business plan going forward is to compete for some of this money. This is going to be done at the state level. So I, I'm really uncertain about how this is going to turn out. You may have some states that already have like a, you know, a state broadband office. They've been working towards understanding where their holes are and what's needed, not, not just in terms of last mile, but also middle mile, you know, connecting whatever you build. If you build fiber optic in the middle of nowhere and you have to connect it to, to, to an old copper line, it's not like you've done a lot to, to help people there. So some states will probably be better than others. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, they're, they're at the mercy of good information. So I'm hoping what happens is maps are viewed as a starting point trust but verify kind of thing you know okay this is an area where it looks like it let's actually send somebody out there and do some taps on the lines and look for yeah. what's going on open up the, the 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 local boxes and see if the rats have infested the copper like there's things that they can do to be sure i mean this is one of my main problems with 477 and i don't really understand how it works and i don't want to insult anyone at the fcc because i think a lot of people at the fcc like hear us 
um, insulting a counselor. They're like, look, I'm just trying to do my job. Like, I do what I'm told, and like, the problem is with the decision makers. But like, I do have this idea that there's someone at the FCC who like gets a hard drive full of 477 data, walks into a room, puts it on a shelf. And like a year later, comes back, grabs it, and is like, "Oh, it's time to release this." And like, <laughs> and like, because it doesn't seem like they spend a lot of time error checking it or like doing anything else. And I'm always sort of like, well, "Why does it take so long to get to us after it's submitted if there's not robust error checking on it and whatnot?" No, that that's incredibly important, and I it actually raises in my mind one thing I kind of glossed over, but want to revisit is form four seven seven isn't just a tool to say where is broadband and where is it. It actually it, remember, the beginning of this was competition, right? It's actually a tool for years that could have been used to accurately measure how competitive things are. And so we pointed out a long time ago to the FCC, hey, Kevin Martin made this change in 2008. This is during the Janikowski year, so probably around like 2010, 2011. You guys have made this change to the data. It's incredibly valuable data. You're not actually using it to, to discuss competition at all. The National Broadband Plan came to the same conclusion and said, hey, you should do this. And also you should let third party researchers come in and look at the raw confidential data. They can sign all the legal agreements that you need them to sign. I, I work on mergers, so I've signed all kinds of confidentiality agreements. It works. And so let, let third party researchers in, let academics, let bozos like me come in with some expertise and do some cool analysis with this data. And, uh, you know, I'll sign whatever you need me to sign. I, I'm not in D.C. anymore, but I've worked with data where I literally had to go into the commission's library. And like, you know, I could not have any other electronic equipment. I can mm-hmm. only like bring preloaded you know, spreadsheets to work with. I'll do whatever. But I want someone to use this data. The FCC ignored the National Broadband Plan's recommendation on that. And for years, they've just done nothing with the subscribership data in terms of looking at competition. And in fact, you're what reminded me of this. You say how long it takes. They've been somewhat slow but regularly issuing the updates to the availability data i can't i think the last update to the to the subscribership data was like 2018 or something so so it's been like what happened to that data you stop putting that out it's somewhat useful because it lets us look at how much of the market cable has versus dsl versus fiber versus fixed wireless but they haven't been updating that for a while so they yes i do have sympathy for someone who's literally entire organizational philosophy to make change every four years with a new chair but ultimately let us help you FCC, you know, let us outside researchers uh, who, and I'm not a mapping expert, but there's a lot of cool folks out there who have done a lot of cool things uh, and know how to combine databases and different maps and, and can, can do this. Let the, let the community help you help the world help the, help the country. So now let's talk about where we're going and I'm pessimistic um, in part because like, I don't know, I think Congress has been like maybe two, three years. Is it two years, three years since Congress basically said six months, give us a good map. And uh, a G pie said, no, you didn't give me any money, so I don't have to do it. And now um, Biden has said, I'm going to wait forever to nominate the people that are the most obvious nominees. <laughs> um, and then who knows if what's happening next. And now they have very little time to do the things they need to do. So uh, I just, I'm, I'm despondent about any sort of hope of the FCC getting this right. Um, but I feel like one issue is this garbage in garbage out. The FCC has refused to take seriously the idea that we should penalize companies that routinely make erroneous claims. Um, that doesn't seem like it's a, something the FCC wants to do. Um, and now there's going to be a challenge process, which to me looks like it's just going to be, 
more complication and muddiness. I don't really know what to expect. It's better than not having a challenge process, I guess. But let me ask, what are you looking for in terms of, of uh, the next FCC with uh, a full 3-2 um, you know, uh, seated? Um, what are you expecting and what are you looking for to try and figure out if this is getting better or not? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to be a cynic, but I'm not even sure we're going to have a 3-2 FCC. I never thought that the Supreme Court would you know, let a nominee go and or excuse me, the Senate would let a Supreme Court nominee mm-hmm. never. Like, so, uh, but it's OK because Breyer's refusing to retire. So right, we all so understand I, that this is not political. <laughs> uh, right. So I, I just I, I want fully staffed agencies, whoever's in charge. I, I just need things to function. And uh, a 2-2 agency is a recipe for status quo. And I don't actually think the status quo is very good right now. Um, <laughs> So, uh, and if, if it's, you know, a different party in charge than it is now, you deal with it, but you need agencies to function because, uh, they, they're designed to function. Right, so, let's just pause for a second there because there's not a good party and a bad party, right? Right. No, but, absolutely. I'm but, an independent, I, I, I'm not a registered of any party, like, but if you had to go back and, and decide, like, am I going to spend four more years with Martin or four more years with Janikowski? I think oh, you're going to pick, pick the Republican. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, like, because yeah. he at least worked with. Uh, his, he had somewhat thick skin and you could cr- critique him and he wouldn't like isolate you. You know, I w- can't say the same for Janikowski. So, mm-hmm. so let's assume we do get a third vote. Mm-hmm. I do think that with uh, the bipartisan nature of the infrastructure act and the sheer large amount of money and the pressure from the States, all the direction that's on the FCC to work with the NTIA, to work with the States. I do think they have a much more pressing incentive to, to get this right. Um, the agency, I have a lot of respect for uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel or Chair Rosenworcel at this point. She at the time in, when the broadband data, the 2008 Broadband Data Improvement Act uh, came out of uh, Congress, which didn't fix all the problems, but it certainly did some good things like uh, they're now annual states of the marketplace reports, annual 706 reports. They used to not be. It used to be just vaguely regular. So they said do that. They said do international comparisons. They got the Census Bureau to start collecting much better survey data. For on adoption, which is incredibly useful. So I think she understands this. Uh, she's long been a critic of the FCC's, uh, while she's been at FC, of, of their data collection practices. So I think the leadership there is solid. But ultimately, I think you hit the nail on the head that you need providers to understand that there is some teeth behind them not doing this correctly. Now, we'll work with them, or the commission can work with them to get better. Uh, the states being involved, I think, will help them get better. But you know, for example, I had a reporter. We get a lot of local reporters calling us up sometimes. I'm sure you do, too. And they, this one called us up, and I won't name where it was, but they basically said, hey, we don't have broadband in our town. And we're shown as covered not only at the basic level of broadband, but we're shown as covered at a gig here, our entire town. You tell us what's going on. And I look at it, and it's a fixed wireless provider that's basically claiming a swath, this like multi-county area. And I, I can barely find their website. Right. That don't seem to be a legitimate carrier. And so that right away is a problem. Like if you need to change the reporting standard to fix that, do it. Or if you need to tell them, hey, you're not actually faithfully adhering to the standard we have, then then fine them. There is a consequence. Right. We've seen carriers come in and out of the data set. This was terrible for Ardolf. We saw some carriers that were in the data set at the time that the, the final like list of eligible blocks was determined. And then they dropped out of the data set after when the challenge process happened and they come back in. And so that like leads to funding areas that don't need it or not funding areas that do need it, depending on when they were in and out of the data set. And that wasn't just one carrier. That was a bunch of them. So, you know, some kind of quality control, I think, is incredibly important. But maybe the commission doesn't have the resources to do it. I, I, I 
haven't been friends with anyone there in a long time, but I do know that some parts of the staff are very overworked with all the stuff coming out. Uh, they're having to stand up the affordable connectivity program, which is long overdue. They're having to do a you know proceeding on how all this money being spent impacts the future of USF. They got some really tight deadlines. They those deadlines are ruining my holiday. It's about to come up, <laughs> but uh, but so they've got a lot of work to do. But it doesn't. So what? We all do, and so let's get this right because I think this truly is a once in a generation thing. Now, what happens if this money is misspent? I think people are going to be cynical and not want to come spend anymore. And so then, what happens to those people in those areas who no no fault of their own? The bureaucrats failed them and they still don't have broadband. And at, at this point, like I said a minute ago, you know, 90 percent of households have it almost everywhere where you can get it. People are subscribing to it and whether or not they can afford it, they're foregoing other things to try to get online. But those people who live in areas that don't have it, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that they want it. It's, you know, people right now are doing things like making ends meet by you know, renting out their house on Airbnb in a rural area. While they go, you know, take care of their mother in, in another state, and they can't do that if you can't attract somebody to that area. But you need internet in that area. You, know? you need for you to market yourself, but also for your guests to come. Things like that. So the White House is getting serious about this. I I have some doubts that things will be a lot better, but we're at least putting the resources behind it, and hopefully, it will get a lot better. Yeah, I think Airbnb may be requiring speed tests from hosts. Now or I don't know if that's a I just really? heard a rumor about that because it's a major thing. People, you know, they don't want to end up in a place where they don't don't have it. So, oh yeah, I, I mean, I we we every now and then we you know during especially during the pandemic you feel a lot safer. Like you know if you're gonna go camping or not camping if you're going out to the wilderness with your kids and you rent an Airbnb. No, I still got kids. Yeah. I feel you, safer you want, camping you want with Wi-Fi. Yeah. I gotta yeah. I gotta connect to, I gotta connect back home. I gotta connect to the to the home office yeah. and, and still work or my kids want to watch whatever streaming shows they want to watch. I camp in so. the Midwest. I camp during storms. Like I want to know if, if there's a thunderstorm cell coming through. You know? like so. 100%. It's a public safety. It's an essential service and I think that that's one of the things the pandemic has sort of taught policymakers in Washington that hey, let's stop joking around. This, mm-hmm. this is an essential service, just like electricity. We, we can't we can't treat it any different. That's the thing that drives me nuts. Is like no one will disagree with that, but so few will act on it. You know, right. I think it's just a talking point still. So, um, well, this has been great. Um, I'll look forward to when we see some action from the FCC. We'll bring you back on if you're available. If you're not, if you're oh, I'm yeah. As, as your listeners, then you can tell I'm happy uh, to go on and on and on and right. on about right. this topic. Uh, well, and I appreciate your your leadership on it because I mean the public interest community. A lot of us are specialized in different things, and I feel like you all um, really keep your finger on the pulse of this stuff. I appreciate it. You guys have been doing great work. Your data work is just impeccable, and I get jealous at how great it is. Oh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you you also keep up the good work for sure. You and your team for sure. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle. Licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening.